Well, around here we are, um, we're thinking about, during this Christmas season, we're thinking about the phrase, unto us. And the idea that the Lord Jesus in the incarnation, we're celebrating at Christmas the arrival of God in a body, that he comes to us, regardless of who we are, regardless of where we've been, regardless even of our response to him. Last week, as we sort of entered into the Christmas season together, we were looking at uh, what it looks like to anticipate Christmas. And we talked about Simeon and his expectation and his hope for the arrival of the Messiah. This week, we're talking about uh, the, the kind of people who, rather than being excited and anticipatory, sometimes miss it altogether. You know, it's really interesting. Uh, when you and I think about the, the sort of the Christmas story, right? If you read the Christmas story on Christmas Eve, the likelihood is you probably read out of Luke 2. You maybe read out of Matthew if you're really living on the edge. Uh, but most of the time, when we think about the story of Christmas, we're thinking about the narrative that is revealed in Matthew and in Luke. But what's interesting, uh, in the text that we're taking this morning, which is in John chapter 1, the Apostle John is giving us this Christmas story, Right? The nativity story is in John 1, and yet he's got the ability to write from a unique perspective because Matthew and Luke have already been written. As he sits down to write his gospel account of the life and work of the Lord Jesus, he has the ability to sort of recognize that Matthew and Luke have already done a great job of talking about shepherds and talking about angels and talking about, you know, the, the arrival of the, you know, the message to both uh, Mary and to Joseph of the coming king, that, that he doesn't necessarily have to go back over those nativity details, the, the, uh, the characterizations and the stories. Instead, when he wants to tell us about the arrival of Christ, he decides to come at it from a different angle. He decides to kind of fill in the gaps of what might be missed when you're paying too close attention to the shepherds and the angels and the manger scene and whatever else. And so when John decides to tell us the story of the arrival of Christ, he does it like this. In John chapter 1, verse 1, and don't miss the tie with Genesis 1-1. That's on purpose. In John 1-1, he says, in the beginning was the word. The word. Remember, as we've been studying Hebrews, We've talked about the idea that the clearest, most articulate, most beautiful thing that God has ever said to mankind or will ever say to mankind, he says in the person of Christ. That the Lord Jesus is the voice and the word of God spoken to us in the person of Jesus. It says in Hebrews 1 that in times past God spoke to us through various and sundry ways, but now he has spoken to us through his Son. And the idea there in Hebrews 1 is it's never going to get clearer, it's never going to get better, it's never going to be more articulate. So here in John 1, he says, in the beginning, right? The beginning, in the beginning was the Word. Speaking about Jesus, the Word of God, the Logos of God. He says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. And the word was God. He speaks to the divinity of God. He speaks to the fact that God was present in our beginning, the beginning of mankind, that he was there. That Jesus didn't come on to the stage later. He wasn't an add-on to the story, but was present from the beginning. Not only present, but it says in verse 3, all things were made through him, and without him was not anything that was made. This lines up with what we read in Colossians chapter 1, that says all things were created by Christ, that all things are sustained by him, that they all are for his glory, and that he upholds them all, right? The word of God was in the beginning. The most articulate thing that God had ever said was there in the beginning, Right? He was there with God. He was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. 
And the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. This is the Christmas story as revealed by the Apostle John. He's laying out for us the story of the arrival of Christ, but there are no shepherds and there are no angels. There is no story here about the manger or the wise men or King Herod or any of that. He says, what you need to focus your attention on is the life that was in Christ that is the light of men, the gift of God that came to us in the beginning, right? That this light comes to us, this great gift. You know, Christmas is a tricky time. It can be a complicated time because of the giving and receiving of gifts. You know what I'm talking about? There's, a, there's an expectation. People are expecting certain things. You want to get them the right thing, but you only have limited budget. You're not sure how they're going to respond. You're not, you know, I mean, I think gift giving makes things really complicated. And uh, sometimes it can, go, it can go really wrong, right? My, uh, my friend Corey, some of you know I was in a band for a little while. I toured the country for a few years with a, with a band. And our bass player, Corey, uh, he comes back from the Christmas break. We'd always take a couple weeks off and he comes back from the Christmas break one year and uh, we're sort of sharing stories as we're getting ready to head back out on tour and I said Corey how was your Christmas and he goes well it wasn't very good and I said why he goes well uh, you know just things didn't go very well at the in-laws house and I was like what do you mean so he says well we went to my wife's parents house for Christmas and it was fine you know we're kind of taking it easy and relaxing and he says but here's the thing there and he says I I had made it very clear to my in-laws that for Christmas this year, I wanted a powerless or like a, like a, a cordless drill, like a Makita powerless screwdriver thing. He's like, I'd even cut out a couple of pictures of it. I'd showed them the website. Like I, they knew what I wanted. I'd been very clear about the powerless, uh, I keep saying powerless, but cordless drill I wanted. And he's like, so when I show up at my in-laws house, um, underneath the tree with my name on it is the box, right? And it's the right shape and the right size. And he's like, I'm just excited because I think for once they got me the thing I wanted. Like the only thing I wanted for Christmas was this drill and they got it for me and this is going to be awesome. He says, so Christmas morning comes around and I'm excited. I can't wait to get it out and plug it in and, you know, maybe even like find some things to put holes in or whatever. And, uh, He says, I peel off the paper, and when I peel off the paper to my shock, he's like, it's not the drill at all, it's a box of magnetized travel games. Magnet checkers, magnet chess, magnet Othello, magnet mahjong, I don't know, he's like, there's all kinds of travel games in there. And he says, I looked at my in-laws and I said, is this just the box you put my drill in? And they were like, no, we thought this would be great. We know you wanted that drill, but you know, you're traveling with the band all year long. You're all over the country. We thought it would be so great, such a thoughtful gift that we would get you games that you can play in the van with the rest of your bandmates. And he's like, travel games, right? You, you got me, this is my present, a box of travel games. And they're like, yes, Merry Christmas, Right? And he's like, all right. He said, I put it under my seat and I just sat there and I was kind of frustrated because I'd been very clear about what I wanted, you know? And he's like, now I got these travel games. He says, well, the next day, you know, the day after Christmas, I'm loading up the car and we've got all this stuff and I got all my gear and I'm trying to make it all fit in the car. And he's like, but it just won't, I'm playing Tetris here. I'm trying to get everything to fit in the car, but it just doesn't all fit. And he goes, I'm looking and I realize that one of the reasons why I'm having such a hard time getting everything to fit in the car is I got this stupid box of travel games that I don't want and I'm never gonna play. He's like, and then I notice my in-law's trash can is just right there by the side of the house. 
And he says, I think, you know what? I'm just going to, I don't want these games. I didn't ask for these games. I'm just going to throw these away, right? So he takes the brand new box of travel games and he puts them in the trash. Now listen, that's bad enough, right? But I think that if you and I were going to do, like if you and I were going to go through the same thing, I think you and I, knowing you the way I do, I think you and I, we would be smart enough to take out some of the trash, right? Put the travel games on the bottom, I mean, that's just common sense, people, right? And then you put the trash back on top. That's the way you pull this off. That is not what Corey did. Corey put the travel games on the top of the trash, right? And then he loaded up the car. They get ready to go. Uh, His mother-in-law comes out. Hugs, hugs. Nice to see you. Merry Christmas. We'll see you later. Father-in-law comes out to say goodbye. And he's got two bags of trash from the kitchen in his hands. And he goes, I'm going to come over there and give you guys a hug in a second. But I got to throw this stuff away first. And he walks over to the trash can. And he opens it up. And sitting right there in full view, the brand new travel games, right? Now here's another opportunity for Corey because his father-in-law says, oh no, somebody accidentally threw away your travel games. (laughs) You and I in that situation, we would say what? Oh no, give me those back, right? I love travel games and I can't, who did this thing, you know? That's the way we would have played this, not Corey. Father-in-law says, oh no, someone threw away your travel games. And Corey goes, that was me, I didn't want those. What? Needless to say, things were a little rough for them for a couple of years, right? Uh, things did not go super well. The father-in-law was hurt. The mother-in-law was hurt. They were, at, they were angry with Corey. Um, and it took a little while to sort of put this whole thing back together. Now, I want you to think just for a second about what that story does to your guts. Like, you listen to that story and you think, that jerk, you know? Like, but I'll tell you, all Christian musicians are like this. So... Uh, <laughs> Watch out, that's all I'm saying. (laughs) No, no, no. Uh, Corey's a quirky dude for sure. He's a great friend of mine. But here's what I want you to think about. You hear that story and it kind of makes you go like, how dare he? Like, why would he so neglect this gift? Even if it wasn't something that he'd asked for, it was something they gave with kindness. It was a thoughtful gift. Like, why wouldn't at the very least you just appreciate it, right? And, and you're feeling that, and I felt that when he told me the story. I felt this sense of like, this is gross, man. You did something terrible, you know? I felt that even though it was just travel games. It's interesting that when the Apostle John sets out to tell the Christmas story, when he sets out to write the nativity, that what he writes is, listen, the very word of God that was with God in the beginning, that was God, that was involved in the creation of the world, that God came to us, he came to us, and the world didn't appreciate it. The the world didn't recognize it. The light came into the darkness And the darkness missed it. I love what it says here at the beginning where it says, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God. The word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All stating things that are true and theologically profound. I mean, we could park right in those two verses for weeks. Great theology in these opening verses. But look at this. It says in verse three, all things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life. And this is profound. Don't, don't skip past it. That doesn't just mean that Jesus was alive, right? It doesn't just mean the, the light came into the world and he was alive. When it says in him was life, it means that there is life in him that he has the ability then 
to extend. It's not just that he was alive, but that life dwelt within him. We see that in the creative order. When he's talking about creating the world, that's only possible because life is in him. When we see him call Lazarus out of the tomb, he's only capable of doing that because life was in him. Jesus himself in John 10 says, the thief comes to steal and kill and destroy, but I have come that they may have life. The idea here is that life is only possible because of Christ. That the life we desperately need is only found in him. In him, it says in this chapter, in him was life. And the life was the light of men. In him was life. And that life was the light of men. I was thinking this week, just sort of devotionally, kind of meditating on this idea of light. The light of men that is the life in Christ. Think about that. The life in Christ that is the light of men. And I was thinking about all of the ways in which that light comes to bear on our lives and in our world. The light of men that is Christ. I think about all the places in our world where there is confusion today. All of the places where it's hard to sort out who's telling the truth and who's not telling the truth. What's right and what's wrong. Where people have become absolutely unhinged from truth, right? And what do we need in that? We need clarity where there's only confusion. How does clarity come? When light is shined into the darkness. We desperately need clarity in the midst of confusion. I think about all the seclusion in the world. People hiding. Think about even what it says in John 3, right? In John 3.19, speaking about Jesus, 3.19 says, this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. I think about all of the places in which there's things going on in secret, people doing things behind locked doors and hoping never to be exposed. That seclusion and that secrecy that only leads to pain and hurt and hardship. And I'll tell you, if you're living with a secret, if you're living in seclusion, if you like the darkness rather than the light, the likelihood is the idea of exposure is not something you're excited about, right? The idea of the light of man being an exposing light That might be a little threatening to you, but can I say as much as you feel like you want to stay in the darkness and as much as you feel like you want to hold your secrets, you and I both know that in the darkness, what we hunger for is to be free of the burden of that, to be free of the lies, to be free of the deceit, to be free of the burden of having to pretend and fake and falsify our way through. No, the light that is the life in Christ, the light of men, not only provides clarity in the midst of confusion, but it also exposes what would otherwise be secluded and hidden. It's a light that exposes and gives, brings truth. It provides direction to our wandering. Think about all of the places and the ways in which our world is trying to find some sort of fulfillment, trying to find some kind of happiness, trying to find some lasting joy, and yet we are insatiable as people. Our eyes are never full of seeing or our ears full of hearing. We always are hungry for more and more and more. And it's because we're wandering apart from the light that is the life in Christ that we need. I love what it says in Psalms 119, right? It's like one of the very first verses they teach you in Sunday school. In fact, they may be teaching that over there in the, uh, the brand new family room this morning. I don't know. Psalm 119 that says, thy word. By the way, thy, I learned it in King James. So you just have to put up with the thys and the thous. It still works, right? Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light to my path. Are you here this morning and you're not sure which way to go, which path to take, which direction to move in? You feel like you're wandering a little bit in your life? 
That's because you need the light of men that is only found in the life that is in Christ. He provides exposure to the dark places. He provides clarity where there's confusion. He provides direction to our wandering. He provides safety where there's fear. You know, that's another property of the light. It provides safety. When things are exposed, we can navigate according to what we see. But as long as things are dark, we have to live in fear. And isn't there so much fear, pervasive fear, that's only perpetuated by the media and only perpetuated by social media and the internet and so only perpetuated? We live in a world that is captured and captive by fear. Why do men and women need the light that is the life in Christ? Because when the light shines on our world, there is truth. There is safety. Psalm 27. I love this. Psalms 27 verse 1 says, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? That's a, that's a good question. If the Lord is my light and my salvation, what is it I'm so worried about? The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? If the life in Christ is mine, this light of men, what do I have to worry about? What is it I'm confused about? What is I'm afraid of? Why am I wandering? No, he is the light that we desperately need. That is what it means when the word comes into our story. When the very word of God comes in. John says, in the beginning was the word. The word was with God. The word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him. And without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life. And the life was the light of men. Woo, right? Verse five, the light shines in the darkness. We get that, don't we? The light shines in the darkness. Do you feel the darkness? I certainly feel it some of the time. I look around and I recognize the places where the darkness has become pervasive. The light shines into the darkness. And the darkness, it says, has not overcome it. Now that's a, when it says overcome it, we want to take a second and just think about this. It is absolutely true that darkness does not overcome light, that where light shines, darkness is expelled. So there's kind of a, you know, there's just sort of the basic idea that when you flip on the switch or you light the candle, the darkness goes. Darkness and light don't exist in the same place. The light chases away the dark. But that word here that's translated overcome is an important word and you don't, you don't want to skip by it too quickly because what he's saying is not just that the, the light has sort of chased the darkness and the light has not been overcome or overtaken by the darkness. But the word there is a, a Greek word called katalambano. And I love this word because it's also found in Ephesians 3, which is one of my favorite passages. In Ephesians 3, which I, I, we may have actually studied here at some point in the past, Ephesians 3, the, the prayer there that Paul prays is that you and I would be strengthened in our inner being by the power of the Spirit. And then according to the power of the Spirit, the Lord Jesus would be settled down and at home in us and then we, being rooted and established in his love, would have power together with all the saints to comprehend the unknowable love of God in its height and depth and width and length. That's Ephesians 3 towards the end of the chapter, right? To comprehend. The word that's translated comprehend in Ephesians 3 is translated overcome in John chapter 1. Same word. And the picture here is not of total comprehension because we know in Ephesians 3 that even empowered by the Spirit... You and I will never fully comprehend the unknowable love of God. The way in which we comprehend it together with the saints is sort of an increasing apprehension. Does that, it's kind of like reeling something in. So the word here that's translated overcome could be translated understood in some of your translations. If you have NIV or King James, it might be understood. Uh, they could be translated grasp. The darkness has not grasped it. 
The darkness has not understood it. The darkness has not increasingly apprehended it. I'll give you a picture of it. Imagine, uh, just so you understand what it's saying, imagine that uh, you're headed over to the 7-Eleven across the street to get a Slurpee, which I hope you do frequently because those are good. So you're headed over to... uh, you're headed over there to the 7-Eleven, and as you approach the front of the 7-Eleven, there's a dude that busts out through the doors, and his arms are full. He's got boxes of Twinkies. He stole like six or seven boxes of Twinkies, and he's full-on sprinting out of the door. He runs past you. He's running down rolling hills, right? And the, the owner of the 7-Eleven comes out and goes, stop the Twinkie thief, you know? And you're like, what? A Twinkie thief? I have to do something because... I'm a Christian and that's how I roll. So anyway, you go chasing after the Twinkie thief, right? And the Twinkie thief's faster than you and you don't have a lot of energy because you haven't had your Slurpee yet, right? So you're chasing him down rolling hills and you've got your fingertips outstretched and you're just able to kind of clamp on to the bottom of his jacket, right? And you, you get a finger hold and you start to pull it and you know what? His jacket comes away, right? And so you, you got a little bit, but you still didn't catch him entirely. And so you reach out and you, you hook him by the belt, but the belt comes unbuckled. Pretty soon he's going to be a naked Twinkie thief, right? The belt comes unbuckled and what you're reeling him in slowly over time, you get a hand and then you're pulling him in. That is the picture that light has shined into the darkness, but the darkness has not increasingly apprehended the light, increasingly understood, overtaken, overcome, right? And that's precisely what Paul prays for the church at Ephesus in Ephesians 3 that they would be able to do according to the power of the Spirit within them. That the Spirit would empower them for Jesus to be settled down and at home, that they would be rooted and established in his love and together increasingly reel in the unknowable, unfathomable, epic love of God. He says, the light shined into the darkness and the darkness has not grasped it, hasn't reeled it in, Right? Back to John chapter one. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And we have not grasped it, even with some great testimony. So look at verses six, seven, and eight. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. Some of you know, if you've spent time with me or you've read any of the stuff I've written about my favorite Bible characters, I, I love John the Baptist. In fact, he might be my favorite of, of the Bible characters in the fact that his philosophy of ministry is perfect. When asked by his disciples, John the Baptist is very quick to say, look, I'm not the Messiah. And people are better off if they spend time with Jesus than they are with me. In John 3, he says, no one receives anything except that which they receive from heaven. He says, I'm not the bridegroom. I'm just the one who stands to the side and rejoices as the bridegroom meets his bride, right? I've told you myself, John the Baptist says, that I'm just the one who comes before him. And my joy is complete as I decrease and he increases. For a guy who gets accused of being a little bit savage, John the Baptist was pretty on it when it comes to philosophy of ministry. What's described here is an ambassador who comes who is not the light himself, but is constantly pointing people to the light. And as a little bit of a side note to our message this morning, for those of you who are a part of this church, that is what we are called to be and to do as well. You're looking for marching orders? Here it is. You're not the light. Make sure you're pointing people to the light, right? It's not us. It's Jesus. But even with the great testimony, even with the great ambassador of somebody like John the Baptist, people miss it. There was a man sent from God. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about it. Verse nine, 
the true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. Wah, wah, wah. Let that settle in for a second. The light shines into the darkness. The light comes into the world. The light even has ambassadors pointing people to the light. He came unto his own. And there, the, the picture is not just that he comes to Israel, his, his people by lineage, but that he comes to his own, meaning his possession. The writer has just told us he created all of this. So when he comes to his own, it, just, it doesn't just mean that he comes to Israel. It means he comes to all the stuff he made, right? He comes to his own, and they didn't know him. They didn't know I had the opportunity to go up to Hume Lake this last summer. And uh, some of you know that I was the... Uh, there's a program at Hume Lake called the Joshua Wilderness Institute, which is like a year-long discipleship program. And uh, I, I actually, when I first went on staff at Hume Lake, I went on staff to develop that curriculum and launch that program. I was the first director of the Joshua Wilderness Institute, which is now in its 17th year, beautiful lodge up there and whatever. But I went up and I was at Hume teaching at a high school camp. And one afternoon I had a little bit of time and I thought, you know, it'd be fun. It'd be fun to go up to the Joshua Lodge because I, I mean, like I was the first guy to move into that building. I was the first guy to have an office in that building. It's like, it feels like a second home to me, right? The books that are in the library up there, I put on the shelves. I threw away all the junk and kept the good stuff, whatever. That place feels like a second home. So this summer I went up to the Joshua Institute and I took a book. I was just going to sit in my favorite chair, looking out over the canyon in my favorite chair and just relax for a little while, right? So I go up to the Joshua Institute this summer and when I get there, the first thing that I'm a little surprised by is somewhere in the last couple of years since I've been there, they had installed like a, like a card reader lock system, right? So I can't open the doors because they're locked and I don't have a card reader. So I'm like, I can't even get into the Joshua building, which I... I love, it's like my second home, I can't get in there. There's a button that says buzz uh, for entrance, right? So they're like a little buzzer. So I, I hit the buzzer and then there's this really nice girl that comes to the door and she just opens the door like a crack. She's a little, I can tell she's a little nervous because I look like this. And so, uh, so she kind of cracks the door and she goes, can I help you? And I said, yes, I'm so glad you opened the door. I said, I would love to just come in and look around. I, I, you know, I just, I love the Joshua building. I love the way it smells. I love the way the Diet Pepsi and the Diet Pepsi machine tastes. I just would like to sit on my chair and read and look out the window. Would it be, can I just come in and read? And she goes, uh, we don't really let strangers in. And I was like, good, that's great. I'm so glad you don't. I wouldn't either, but can I come in, you know? And uh, she's like, you know, it's just not really something we do. We just don't really let people in because there are people living here, you know, it's like our home. And we just, I just don't know that, you know, I feel comfortable with you coming in. And you guys, I was like, I just, I couldn't believe it, right? Because this feels like my place. Now I'm being kept out of my place. Finally, she let me in. She's like, okay, well, I, I'll, I'll let you come in and, and read, you know, whatever. But then even as I'm sitting there reading, I keep seeing her. She's like peeking around the corner looking at me. I don't, I don't know what she's like waiting to see if I'm going to like graffiti a pentagram on the wall or something. I don't know what she's waiting for. But, she, you know, she, I can tell she's nervous about having me there. And that made me feel so weird. Now, listen, I didn't create that building. I didn't, cre- you know, like it doesn't belong to me. I haven't been there in a long time. But the, the, the feeling that I felt was not a good one, of not being welcome in a place that I considered to be my own home. Can you imagine what it feels like for the creator of the universe 
who gave life and breath to everything we know and everything we are, the one who created it from the ground up, the very word of God who was with God and was God, to come to our rescue, to come to the earth in the incarnation, to enter into our loss and our pain and our darkness and our sorrow, to rescue us from sin and death and to have his own people, his own creation, not know him. To have his own people, the great majority of them, use his name as a curse. To have his own people be the ones calling for his crucifixion. To come to his own and not be made welcome. John says, the true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. Despite the fact that Jesus came unto us, mankind tends to be distracted. Mankind tends to be distracted. One of, the, one of my favorite characters in the walk through Bethlehem thing you guys will see this week uh, is the character of the townspeople that kind of gather around the well. In, in walk through Bethlehem, it's not a coffee shop because they didn't have espresso machines in Bethlehem at the time. They do now, but back then they didn't. And uh, there are these people gathered around the well and they're talking. There's kind of a gossipy sort of thing that's happening there. And they're talking about this young lady that came into town, right? Have you heard about this young lady that came into town? pregnant, know what I mean? Not married, know what I mean? Yeah, right? And it's not silly like that, but there is this sense in which these townspeople are in the very place where the Messiah is being born, and they're distracted by things that don't matter. They're distracted by whether or not a pregnant woman should even be riding on a donkey. Is that even healthy for her or the baby? Did she even consider that? Maybe because this guy's not her husband, he didn't think about, you know, I mean, there's just kind of that, that distraction, and it's a great picture of how easy it is for us to not see the light of the world for what it is, but to be distracted. Three quick things I want you to see this morning that we see in the text that I want us to be on guard for. The Lord comes to us in the incarnation, and sometimes we miss it. We see in the text in verses 9 and 10 that his arrival was met with ignorance. His arrival was met with ignorance. He came to his own, and they did not know him. And you might look at that and go, well, if I didn't know him, I wouldn't be in church, right? If I didn't know him, I wouldn't be here this morning, so obviously that one doesn't pertain to me. Listen, it's just like we've been studying in Hebrews. It is possible over time for our focus to drift off of Jesus and to focus on all the wrong things. It is possible to know all kinds of things about the Bible and know all kinds of things about religion, to have tasted and seen and experienced, but to never have faith coupled with action in our lives. So just because you're in the room doesn't mean that you're giving to God the glory and the worth that he deserves. It is possible to treat his arrival with ignorance. It is possible to treat his arrival with ignorance and to focus on the wrong things. The second thing I want you to see in the text, look at verses 12 and 13. It says, he came in 11, he came to his own and his own people did not receive him. But verse 12, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Not everybody ignored him. Not everybody missed the arrival of the Messiah. To those who did receive him, he gave. It's his gift, right? He gave the power, not something they earned, not something they deserved. To those who received him, he gave the power by his grace to become sons of God. Listen, God doesn't just forgive us of our sin. In Christ, he doesn't just wipe the slate clean. He doesn't just call things, you know, good to go. He doesn't even just give us eternal life. He doesn't even just give us entry into heaven. In Christ, what is extended to us is sonship and daughtership. To those who receive him, he gives the power to become 
children of God. But his adoption typically is met with insolence. His arrival is met with ignorance. His adoption tends to be met with insolence because what it says here in 13, he gives them the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Can I tell you that despite the fact that becoming children of God doesn't have to do with our blood, our lineage, what we look like, where we come from, despite the fact that it doesn't have to do with our flesh, the will of our flesh, what we want, what we're hungry for, what we desire, or the will of man, what we think, what we want, what we do, it has nothing to do with our decisions or our desires or our divisions. We tend to make resurrection life about those things. We tend to make resurrection life about those things. It becomes about you know, being able to sort of puff up our chest and say, look at what I've got. Look at who I am. Look at what I want. Look at what I can get. But he says this salvation is not of blood or the will of the flesh. It's not about desires or divisions or man's decisions. It's about the gift of God. His arrival is met with ignorance. His adoption tends to be met with insolence, rebellion, where we go, no, I want to do it my way. That's why Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 says, for by grace you have been saved. It's the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast, right? Don't, don't miss that. You know why a lot of us don't really love the grace of God? We don't, we don't sort of wrap our arms around the grace of God? Because we want to boast. We want to have something Christian-y to post on our Instagram, Right? We want to be able to retweet something that makes us look good. We like boasting about our holiness. We like boasting about our faith. We like boasting about all the good things we have done. And the idea of grace that saves us apart from our blood or apart from our flesh or apart from our desires and our own will, there's not much to brag about there unless you're going to brag about Jesus and what fun would that be? So we tend to meet his adoption with insolence when what we should do is get our arms around the grace of God and abandon our declaration of our own goodness because it's worthless. Not by works of righteousness, it says in Titus, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saves us. His arrival is met with ignorance. His adoption is met with insolence. And lastly, his articulation is met with indulgence. It says in verse 14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. The word of God, the logos of God, was with God and was God by whom all things were created. Life was in him and that life was the light of man came into the darkness and the darkness has not fully and increasingly apprehended it. He came into his own and they did not know him. He became flesh. He made himself nothing. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. Back to Ephesians 3 again, it says that Jesus would be settled down and at home in you, that he would dwell in you richly. He set up camp among us in the darkness to lead us to his light, the life that was in him. The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. For from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. What a gift the grace of God, right? It's so incredible that he comes and he is the articulation of God. The word becomes flesh, the greatest articulation of truth that man has ever known. And yet that articulation is met with indulgence because we hear about this grace and we go, well, that seems to me like a get out of jail free card. Like I can do whatever I want. Like I can live however I want. I'll close with one last verse. In 2 Timothy 
chapter three, it says this, understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Man, that's quite a list. Sounds like they're describing Walmart on Black Friday. Lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. The grace of God has been revealed to us. We receive grace after grace, but for many of us, for many of us, the articulation of God is met with indulgence. That this doesn't describe some people who lived a thousand years ago or two thousand years ago who had, he had all kinds of problems. That this is still indicative and, and descriptive, not only of a world that doesn't know him, but very often descriptive of the, the people inside the church. That even in here, We take our eyes off of Jesus. We start to drift. We forget the anchor of our souls, the greater hope, the true high priest who ministers in a true reality of a true covenant. No, his arrival was met with ignorance, right? His arrival was met with ignorance. His his adoption was met with insolence and his articulation was met with indulgence. The call for us as we think about Christmas is not to be distracted by the wrong things, but to remember Life was in him and it came to us that we have the opportunity to see that life, to see that light and receive it, to know him, to receive him, which as it says in the text means to believe and to navigate our lives by his light, to navigate our lives with clarity and exposure, right? To navigate our lives by the light of Christ that is the life in him. Would you pray with me this morning? God, I pray that you would help each and every one of us to not be distracted by peripheral things, to not look away from the great gift of the incarnation, the gift of your arriving among us and unto us and setting up camp where we were to bring light into the darkness. God, I pray that we would increasingly apprehend it, that empowered by the Spirit, we would increasingly reel in the unknowable love of God that we wouldn't remain in darkness, that we wouldn't cower in darkness, but that we would love and trust and receive and believe in and allow our lives to be navigated by the light that you've shined in the darkness in Christ. We pray that in Jesus' name, amen.